You're listening to the Flying Goat Farm Podcast with your host, Lisa Check. This podcast is for people who love yarn and fiber and sheep, who love to knit and crochet and maybe even felt. We will be talking about the crossroads between keeping sheep and goats, making yarn, and expressing your colorful self. Hi, everybody. It's me, Lisa, from the Flying Goat Farm. And here is our next episode of the Flying Goat Farm podcast. We're going to be talking about fast fashion versus slow fashion. But first, here's what's happening on the farm. So we're mid-May here in the mid-Atlantic. And oh my gosh, it's a gorgeous day today. It's going to be 75. There's a little bit of a breeze, um, kind of high clouds, but still pretty sunny outside. Um, It's just wonderful. And it just makes you want to go and be outside and read a book or take your spinning or take your knitting and sit outside and hear the birds sing and all of that. Around here, it's asparagus season. That means we're inundated with asparagus, which I thought Bill liked. But um, I found out a couple years ago that I am the only one in our household who likes asparagus. So um, I'm eating a lot of asparagus and uh, it's lovely. It's it's my one of my favorite times of year. Um, there's nothing like fresh asparagus. Um, it doesn't do, it doesn't make anything smell funny um, when it's fresh like that. And um, I love our really healthy, healthy spears that probably are at a half an inch in diameter. Um, they're just nice and juicy and bulky, great on the grill. Um, great to just roast them in the oven, put them in eggs, put them in rice, make them in stir fries. Do I sound like Forrest Gump yet? <laughs> asparagus risotto, asparagus omelets, asparagus quiche, asparagus soup. I've, I've tried asparagus soup a couple of times and it's not my favorite. I'd so much rather just um, eat the asparagus spear by spear. I usually eat it with my hands. If you are local, there is a restaurant in town, Isabella's, and they make the most wonderful um, fried asparagus. Like they're breaded and fried. Oh my gosh, they're to die for. So um, it's a, like a tapas restaurant and you can go and get those and maybe have a glass of sherry or something. Um, so if you're local, try out Isabella's. We're also seed planting. Rather, I'm not. Bill is. I'm not a gardener. Um and I think I've told you that before, uh, but uh, we're working on getting seeds planted in the ground. Bill has the tomatoes ready to go that he grew from seed, but in his hydroponics. So they are quite tall already. I have a whole bunch of starts for my indigo garden as well that I'm kind of excited about. I'm going to be planting a lot of indigo this year because I have a lot of seeds and I want to see um, what I can do and if I can also let some go to flower so I can collect seeds for next year. And we're eating a lot of kale and chard, all those winter um, greeny vegetables, again, that grew um, in our hydroponic system. And so we're getting a lot of that too. So it's just a lovely, lovely time on the farm. So let's get to 
our episode for today. First, let me review kind of about where we've been. So episode one, I talked about style, and I did want to add a little bit more to that lesson on style because I'm not sure if I had really talked about this enough, like how important our style is. It's part of our personal narrative. It's part of our personality. Um, It communicates to other people who we are and where we come from. Um, And people can know that right away just by looking at what you're wearing. But it's also more than that. It it communicates who we are to ourselves as well. Um, Our clothing gives us comfort. Um, It also gives us protection, um, whether that's, you know, emotional, spiritual protection or actual protection from the elements like a parka or a raincoat. Um, And it also can give us some strength. I know that I have certain pieces that when I wear them, I just feel better about myself and I feel like more strong, more capable. um, And it it gives me some, uh, another little edge of power that I didn't have if I was just in like my t-shirt and pajama bottoms, right? So um, style is so much to uh, ourselves and to our society. Um, And we really do make two decisions every single day. And that is, what are we going to eat and what are we going to wear? So we are getting better at at eating in a responsible way with the slow um, food movement, with so many CSAs out there, uh, community-supported agriculture for the farmer's markets, People are more educated to know what they should be looking for and how to get food that's grown in a responsible manner. And now it's time to start making those clothing decisions in the same way. And that's what this season is all about. In the last episode, we talked about the basics of what cloth is made of from animals, plants, and finally to the plastics that have kind of taken over our textile system. So today, um, I was going to talk about fast fashion versus slow fashion. So, but let's start by talking, doing a little bit of a short history on clothing in and of itself. So archaeologists believe that the first clothes that were ever made were about 170,000 years ago. It's like, how do they know that? Um, Basically, they know that from finding the presence of lice um, yeah, isn't that yucky? Yeah, so you can so lice can uh, have have a sheltered place to live if you're wearing clothing, as opposed to if you're not wearing clothing, that the lice and your body is going to be less, you know, more out in the elements. Um, so I just thought that was fascinating that you know that they found the presence of lice and so realized, oh well, so that must be when. Um, human beings started wearing clothing. Um, Around that same time, they see the invention of some kind of an awl, an an AWL awl, and that's to make holes in the skins of the animals that that, that was your quote-unquote fabric um, that we were first wearing. And you had to make holes in the skin so you could sew them together, right? Um, At About 45,000 years ago, they see the invention of a needle and the threads that were used probably from way before that were sinew from the animals that they were eating. 
and maybe some plant fibers, bast fibers, like um, like what you would see in flax or what you might see in other tall, weedy plants where they're using the inside fibers that keep the stems so straight. Um, about 10,000 years ago is when we see the domestication of animals and the propagation of linen as a crop. And we see some finer techniques being developed around that time. Um, mostly there's construction of one piece garments and it's very late. The garments themselves are very lab labor intensive to make. You know, you have to take whatever's, you know, from the, the wool of the animals or um, finding those fibers in the middle of those linen plants, the flax plants, and you have to um, prepare those fibers, you have to spin those fibers, and then you have to do th something with them, whether that would be something like weaving or something like knitting. So, but the fact that they had these one piece garments that were made um, in those kind of techniques tells you that people didn't have a lot of clothing. They probably had maybe one set of clothing that they continued to mend um, and even pass down to other generations. And we also about 10,000 years ago, we start to see the beginnings of dying with plants and insects and mollusks. And again, we were the human race was making paints out of different muds and different insects and different plants. And then they were taking that same kind of technology of make of what was in paints and making those um, kind of marks on the cloth that they were making. And we also see around this time um, a diversification of style based on people's culture, the climates where they lived, and the materials that were close to them. Again, a true decentralization of textile production. You had to make what you or your family were wearing. It was not, um, it was not an industrialized situation at that time. Um, and we see that these different types of clothing pop up in, ver in various places around the earth. And that's why, you know, like this technology was just building and becoming more widespread. So before the Industrial Revolution, weavers and spinners were making the cloth and the sewers were I can say it. The sewers were making the cloth for their families. And then it grew into um, a cottage industry where they were making the clothing for their communities and, of course, for their nobility, right? Um, and it, I saw somewhere where um, they estimated that it took um, seven or eight spinners for every one weaver um, This because the spinners have to do a lot of spinning in order to make a piece of cloth, uh, sorry, a piece of cloth that a weaver is going to weave that cloth. It takes a lot of yarn and thread to um, make that cloth. And so people just had, again, one, maybe two outfits. Maybe you had something that was your regular work clothing and maybe you had something that was a little bit more fancy. Um, and I'm talking about the 
you know, the working class people. Of course, the nobility had as many clothes as they wanted to have or could have made and because they, you know, had, had the money for it, had the power for it. Um, so they had much more um, to wear. But again, it wasn't anything like it would have been today. Um, so the clothing that people had, these were repaired over and over again during the years, and they were passed down within the family. And those clothes were really made to last. I'm thinking even about the kimonos in, um, in ancient Tokyo, that in order to wash those kimono, the stitches were all taken out. And so the, that each piece of silk and mostly, and they, these were, it, that, that costume is made out of long rectangles. So to, in order to wash and, you know, the kimono, they take it apart and then re-sew it back together again. Um, very different than the way that we treat our clothing today and much more gentle way and a way that really makes it um, last a long time. In the 20s, women had about nine outfits. And again, you cared for those clothes because they were expensive and they were meant to last. And maybe you had different um, accessories that would make the outfits look a little different. But again, it wasn't, it, it wasn't the same kind of um, social pressure to only wear something once. You can't be, you know, like think of our celebrities, you know, they, they can't be seen in the same outfit more than once. Think about um, uh, Princess Kate and the style that she has and, you know, that, that there is this pressure that she always has something new and different on. In the 50s and 60s, families became, had, were starting to get much more income after the wars and um, women were coming in, had come into the workforce um, there was a lot more advertising, and so there were a lot more clothes. And people stopped looking at clothing as a necessity and began to think about it as a fashion, as a fashion trend. And when I think about the 50s and 60s, I think about Twiggy um, and all those sensational um, designs that she, uh, can't, that she wore and that people tried to emulate, all those fashions of the 60s. In the 70s, the counterculture kind of took hold and we saw a decrease um, in the fashion industry for the vast amount of the country. But then again, in the 80s, we see another rise in income and, and, and people were starting to chase luxury more, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, you know, the Kardashians weren't quite around yet. So it was, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. But the big important thing about the 80s is that corporations started buying up the fashion houses. And the corporations were run in a capitalist way with capitalist agendas. And so this really started to change the world of fashion. Making a profit became more important than making fashion choices. And just like today, the corporations only sought to reduce cost. Um, and so that this is when the great outsourcing of production to Asian countries started. Um, I can say that uh, it, my family in the 
60s and 70s were working in the cotton mills in North Carolina. Um, they shut those mills were shut down and so they switched over to then being the sewing group in again in North Carolina. Um, but in the 80s, all of that was all of those places were also closed down and everything went to Asia. Um, in the 1990 to 2000 framework, we see the birth of fast fashion brands, brands like Zara, like H&M. Um, and the idea, again, of not wearing the same thing twice. Um, and so at that time, we saw over 1 million garments being made per day. And that was 20-something years ago. So just think about how much more accelerated that production has become. So what is fast fashion? So, you know, I would say probably before the 1980s, there were, fashion had four seasons. You had a, a winter collection, you had a spring collection, you had a summer collection and a fall collection. But when those corporations became involved in fashion, the number of seasons began to increase. So now there's, uh, you know, it, it went from four to like six to 10. And now there really isn't anything like a season. Yes, there are collections, but there are a lot of collections per year. This encourages people to purchase more and more and more clothing. Um, and if you're a fashionista, you know, you know, you can't be caught dead in last week's tr fashion trend. You have to have this week's fashion trend. Or if you're an influencer, you need to be, you know, even more on the cutting edge. Um, I saw a program lately where this woman had drawers and drawers and drawers of one athletic brand's um, tops and, um, spandex pants and, uh, shorts and all these things, drawers and drawers and drawers of them, um, because she couldn't resist the fact that each week on each Thursday, I think she said that this brand released their new items. And so every Thursday morning she was on their website purchasing something else. So this, huge increase in the number of garments that's being made also results in clothing that's not made very well. I know that many of us have bought something and you really can only wear it once because a seam isn't um, sewn properly or um, a hem comes out um, and it's, uh, it's, harder to uh, sometimes fix these things than to just say, oh, well, that was a bad decision, you know, and throw it into the discard pile. Um, so looking back 19 to 2018, which is the closest information that I could find, um, over 80 billion, with a B, garments were sold all over the world. And the projections are that that number would double by 2033. So in about 10 or 11 years, we're going to be at 160 billion garments being sold in the world, unless we do something to drastically change that. 
Um, there's the other statistic that I found that customer, consumers are buying 60% more clothing and keeping them half as long. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with all that production and all that cost cutting? Well, as in, in Obama's address to the UN Climate Summit, he quoted Jay Ensley, the governor of Washington, saying, we're the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. So we have to do something about it. And clothing is one way that we can do something about climate change. Fast fashion is using a huge part of the Earth's resources. Fast fashion uses way too much water. It uses way too much oil. It has impacts on the way land is being used and the way land is being um, fostered. And fast fashion companies are using and abusing too much human capital. So the health of the workers and even the health of the wearers, which we will talk about in a later podcast, and also fair trade and wealth equity um, throughout the world. That's what's wrong with fast fashion. So how can it be so cheap? It can be so cheap because workers are not being paid a living wage. Um, and not just in other countries. This is also happening in the United States. Um, one of the biggest garment uh, districts, couldn't think of the word, districts is in Los Angeles. And recently at a fiber shed a summit, they had um, some of the workers there talking about um, being paid by the piece, not being paid being paid by the hour and how that resulted in um, work that was not, not quality um, just because you had to get it done in order to feed your family. In many countries, there's also underage workers. A lot of child labor is involved and not just in the manufacturing um, or sewing areas, but also in the rural areas for the growing of cotton, per, so to say, or also in the places where they are um, dying fabrics would be, have kids that are working there. And again, they aren't being paid a living wage. Um, companies are racing to zero. Uh, everyone is searching for the cheapest production possible so that there can be the cheapest price point possible so that we are um, more um, apt to buy their product. You know, every time a, a certain commercial comes on for a certain company, um, I'm just amazed that they can be selling $10, um, $10 jeans or $5 t-shirts. And when you think about, you know, all the resources that have gone into making that piece piece of clothing and then having it being valued at five or ten dollars, you can see where the disconnect is. And consumers are just not savvy to the material cost, the human cost, even the cost to themselves. And they're really gullible into believing what the companies are saying. 
There's several companies out there that talk about being sustainable, but are they truly sustainable? I think we have to do a little bit more homework. Um, And of course, how can it be so cheap? Everyone loves a deal. You know, let's be real. Um, Why not buy that pair of $10 pants or that $5 t-shirt? And then I just, and I have more savings or I can make my rent this month. You know, it's, it's hard to be um, responsible sometimes. Fibers and dyes and toxins. Oh my. So again, with fast fashion, we're talking about um, the health of the workers and the health of those people who are wearing the, the clothing. Um, we talked about fibers last time, but to, to say that petroleum uses 350 million barrels of oil this year, and that it also means that there is uh, carbon emissions of 282 billion kilograms of carbon. That's three times higher than um, cotton production. So just looking at the production of the so-called plastic um, petroleum-based fabrics. Um, rayon tensile and bamboo fabrics, like we talked about last time, they use carbon disulfide who's po- that has really poisonous fumes that cause neurological damage to those who are around it. And the U.S. manufacturing was bl- banned for rayon type materials in 2013 for this reason. So what happens? They send those overseas because there aren't those kind of OSHA restrictions or EPA restrictions in other companies countries. Greenpeace detox campaign was um, back in 2010, 2011, and they tested um, for chemical, for toxic chemicals in clothing from 20 major brands. And they found um, toxins in more than 90 out of the 141 items that they were allowed to test. And again, we'll be talking about that Um, in a future episode. But so the clothing, after it's already made, we're talking about that there are still toxic chemicals in there that will affect you and your family. And again, polyester can really can only be dyed with very toxic dyes. And that effluent is just dumped into the streams and rivers again, because it's being, um, that is being manufactured overseas where there aren't EPA rules against that kind of toxicity. And of course, fast fashion causes land and air and water pollution. Um, Waste from the manufacturing and dyeing are just dumped into the watersheds like I was just talking about because there aren't environmental laws. Um, And don't you think that was one of the reasons that the, that, the manufacturing was outsourced. We know that it was in the rayon tensile bamboo arena, but also, so you have cheap labor and you have countries that don't um, fine you for environmental abuse. And so those are two really good reasons to take the manufacturing overseas. However, all those results still happen. They just aren't fined for it. Herbicides and pesticides on GMO cotton crops is astounding. There's over $2 billion of chemicals used each year in the production of cotton. 
um, and the land itself is accumulating these chemicals. So um, it, it's reducing the biodiversity and lowering the so soil health. When you have that, those kind of toxic chemicals, you're not going to have earthworms per se. You know, you're not going to have um, the beneficial bacteria and fungi that happen in really healthy soils because you're putting in all this toxic stuff on top of it. And it's being accumulated year after year after year. And of course, carbon emissions. It's estimated in 2018 that the fashion industry caused 2.1 billion, not billion, million tons per year of carbon emissions. And fast fashion has a problem with water use as well. The climate, it's, it's changing. We all know that. We can all see the pictures of what's happening in Western United States and around the world with water becoming more and more of a global challenge. And clothing manufacturer manufacturing is highly water intensive. To make one t-shirt, it takes 700 gallons of water. So multiply that by all the t-shirts made in a year and you can see the problem. Yes, some of that water can be recycled, but again, it's going to be, have those toxic toxins in it. Um, so you have to, you know, be very careful about what goes back into the watershed, or they should be at least. And it also, how how much does it take to make a pair of jeans? Eighteen hundred gallons of water to make a pair of jeans. That's a lot. So the estimates are that by 2030, so by in seven years, about 7 billion cubic meters of water will be needed for the fashion industry alone. And they've looked at that and compared it to sustainable water levels, like how much water does the wor world actually have? What do we need to keep being sustainable? Well, that estimate just for clothing for the fashion industry is 40% over the sustainable water levels. There's just too much water being used. And what comes after just the fiber and the dyeing? Well, you have to consider the people that dye and cut and sew and finish our clothing. As I've said, they're underpaid and overworked. They're working in dangerous conditions. We remember the fires in the different uh, manufacturing, you know, quote unquote, sweatshops or the collapse of that building in India where workers were trapped, um, where, you know, the, the doors are locked. People are locked in and they are just sitting ducks for something dangerous happening. And we also have to consider the huge amount of resources used for transportation and distribution of all the materials and the final clothing, you know, materials going from one country to the next, um, materials go, going into fiber, and then it goes somewhere else to be made into fabric, and then it goes somewhere else to be made to, to be cut and sewn, and then it goes back to us for distribution um, at the stores. And the price that we're paying is just not commiserate with the use of the limited global resources, in my opinion. And of course, then there's the waste chain. So this fast fashion with people, the trends changing and people only wearing things once, um, it's, it, it's 
um, making a giant problem with the landfills. Because what happens to all those clothes? There, so in 2011, Americans bought about 68 new items of clothing per year. And I'm going to include in that like pairs of shoes, belts, purses, you know, accessories, those kind of things. And at the same time, they trashed about 68 pounds of clothing per year per person. There were 13.1 million tons of discarded clothing coming into our landfills. And that was 11 years ago. The problem is not erased and it's probably gotten worse. Especially with the social media influencers and um, companies, advertisers saying, you know, urging us to stay on trend, to buy the latest thing. Um, and a lot of these uh, clothing, they're not just staying in America, they're going to landfills and third world countries. Again, we'll talk about that in a later episode. So what is the answer? Well, slow fashion is the answer. And slow fashion is based on having a decentralized textile economy and a local textile economy. It's based on having consumers like you who are knowledgeable, who demand organic and responsibly made clothing and fabric. And it's based on responsible consumers who are taking care of their textiles in a way that prolongs their life and prolongs the conditions of the garments. It means buying things that are of more quality and cost more, but are meant to last for a longer time. And and slow fashion also requires creative consumers who value upcycling or mending their clothing or other textiles in a way that respects the fabric and the community that made the fabric. We'll be talking a whole lot more about slow fashion. And one of the problems with this and I'll just give you, you know, the taste of it now is because we did outsource and close all of our textile manufacturing in the 60s, it, what it's going to take is revitalizing that textile economy, um, re you know, opening up again those manufacturing um, uh, factories in our country. Which will take time and it will take money. But so what do we do with what we already have? So I know by looking in my closet, I have a lot of clothes that that contain plastic. Um, They just do. You know, they have a little stretch in them. So maybe there's a little lycra somewhere. Um, You know, all of those um, leggings that we've been wearing for two years because of the pandemic. And I know that I don't want to just discard that. That is discard them. That isn't right. Um, they're not at the end of their life. Um, so, but I feel like I have to be more um, of a thinking com- consumer in this area. So, if they're still wearable, I'm still wearing them, knowing that they're not the best clothing for me personally, as far as the toxins that may still be in them. Um, they're um, but I have them and I don't want to just discard them. And I know that, and I've said this before, that this is going to be a process that is something that's going to happen over a series of months and years, rather than something that you just like turn on a dime and say, okay, no more. 
I'm only doing, you know, only going to buy American organic cotton clothing. Um, that's, uh, you can't do, I don't think you can do it on a dime and I'm not asking you to do it on a dime, but I know that for myself as well as I'm also turning my thoughts into making sure that I'm caring for the clothes that I do have in a more mindful way. I'm reducing the number of times I wash the clothes um, and I'm only using cold water so that I am reducing the amount of microplastics that's going into my soil, into you know our septic system. Um, so that's kind of what I'm doing and like starting to think about being more mindful and what to do with what we have. And coming up with an end of usable life plan for the clothing that I do have. Um, so what a, a usable life plan or end of, you know, an end of life plan for my clothing um, is like, what, what do you do with the clothes that you don't want to wear anymore? Not one more time. If they're in good shape, and by that I mean there's no stains, there's no rips, that they are they are still wearable, and then those you can donate. Um, and those you're either going to donate them or you're going to wear them into the ground. Um, and you can you know donate them to um, a goodwill if they're really high quality. You can you know there are a lot of thrift stores that actually people, um, you know, buy and reuse those clothing, those pieces of clothing a lot more than say Goodwill or Salvation Army. Those things that are not in good shape, those things that have stains or rips, or you're, they're getting a little bit frayed or a little, you could start to see through the fabric, that kind of thing. Here's a brainstorm of what I think could happen. And I would love to hear what you guys think too. This is just my brainstorm. So one thing you can do is you can upcycle those. You can change those jeans into skirts or bags or shorts. Um, you can take old t-shirts and make them, or uh, men's shirts and make them into shopping bags. I've seen um, videos on how to do that. You can take your sweaters and turn them into mittens or oven mitts or purses or pillow covers. Um, a lot of times you can take those sweaters, especially if they have a little wool or alpaca or something in them, put them in the washer, put them in the dryer, shrink them on purpose so that they are a lot heavier and felted. And then you can definitely make them into, you know, something, the pair of mittens or oven mitts that are usable. Um, of course, you can always quilt. That's what happened over the years. People took all of their old clothes and turn, to cut them apart and made them into quilts. Um, and maybe you've even seen some of those t-shirts that you can make into a memorable quilt, like for, you know, I've seen them for kids' graduations where it's like all of their favorite college uh, t-shirts kind of things are made into a quilt. Um, and you can also take that garment apart and cut the fabric to make into pot holders. I'm going to do a video on that. Um, when I was um, when I was a youngin, probably 10 to maybe 18, I made so many pot holders. It was everybody's Christmas present. So I will be showing you how to do that and how to use some of the, your older falling apart clothing to be the stuffing inside.
Um, you can use them as rags until they fall apart. And the last thing is that there are starting to be some cloth recyclers in the area who will take that, clo that cloth and rip it apart and offer it for sale to for other kinds of manufacturing. So here's my call to action for this time. Um, if you haven't already, do a closet inventory. What are the fast fashion items that you currently own? Which ones are in good shape? Which ones do you want to still wear? And which ones do you need to make an end of clothing life plan for? Um, and then think about what is it that you want to do with those pieces of clothing? Do you want to, um, to donate them? Do you want to make something out of them? Do you want to use them as rags? What do you want to do that could potentially keep these out of a landfill? And so I know this has been a little bit longer uh, podcast than I normally do. I had a lot of information to get out there. Um, but until next time, please let me know what you're thinking in the comments or send me an email. I'd love to know what you're doing to take action in your own closet. Um, I'd love to hear your brainstorms about things that you could possibly do with some of those items that are in your closet that you don't want to use anymore. And so until next time, happy making. Well, that's this episode of the Flying Goat Farm podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review. Have a question you'd like me to answer? Send an email to goatherd at flyinggoatfarm.com. And to see our farm and yarn and roving, check out our website at flyinggoatfarm.com. Follow me at Flying Goat Farm on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm Goat Herd on Ravelry. Until next time, happy making.